Our text this morning is uh, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 2. This is Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. And if you grew up hearing stories of the Bible, this one is probably familiar to you, Um, although it might be one of those Passover kind of stories. I'm not referring here to the biblical Passover. Um, I call it Passover story when you read a story as you read through the Bible and you think to yourself, well, I don't know what's going on there. Passover to the next one. Um, But we shouldn't. We shouldn't pass over this story. There's much rich uh, food for us, for our souls here in uh, this story from the Word. So um, before we read it, uh, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would come, that you would speak to us by your Word today. Grant that we might hear you with the ears of our hearts and be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We confess that each of us brings different distractions and burdens with us this morning. We ask that you would center our minds and our hearts upon you, that we might grow in our trust in Christ today, and that we might delight in the hope that we have because of him, and that we might leave here better able to love one another in his name. Lord, this does not happen by the strength of my words or the great songs that we've sung or even the depth of our friendships here in this room, but it will happen by the power of your spirit through your word taking root in our hearts. So come, Lord, and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, God tells an essential truth and gives an essential command. It's a command to Peter, James, and John, but through them, it's a command to each of us. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
The essential message that the creator of the universe spoke with audible words from heaven and wanted these disciples to know and want us, wants us to know is that Jesus is his beloved son and that we should listen to and trust Jesus. Now this is a message that is applicable to you no matter where you are in your faith story. No matter how long you've been a believer, and even if you are not yet a believer, this message is for you. Listen to God's beloved Son. There's a sense in which this is the most important sentence that there is for a human being to understand. It's right up there with, in the beginning God created. All the deepest questions of human history find the beginning of their answer here. Listen to God's beloved Son. Looking at this passage, I want us to see three simple things. This phrase that God says to these three disciples means three things. It means that we must, first, recognize who Jesus is. We must, second, trust in the word of God that has been given to us. And finally, because of those first two, we can be sure of our hope. So recognize who Jesus is. Trust in the word of God. Your hope in Jesus is secure. Before we get to those points, I want to dig into the, the passage a bit and give some context. Um, in the last 10 verses or so of chapter 8, we have both Peter's confession of the Christ and Jesus telling Satan to get behind him. Jesus had asked the disciples who they thought he was, and to answer, Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ and is commended for this insight. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to Peter. Jesus then discusses with them the death and resurrection that he would soon accomplish. And Peter stops on a dime, pivots, and begins to rebuke his Lord. Yeah, yeah, I said you're the Lord, but you're wrong about this. Jesus says to Peter, it may have been my father who revealed who I am to you, but you're talking with the devil's language now. So, while these disciples are starting to understand who Jesus is, they do not yet understand who Jesus is. That is, they're starting to accept his lordship, but they are not accepting or understanding him in his mission. This is the backdrop. This is the, the state of relations between Jesus and his disciples just before our passage this morning begins. The question very much on the table is, who is Jesus? So Jesus, in our passage, takes this inner circle of disciples, John, John's brother James, and Peter. Everyone knows Peter. Uh, early church tradition holds that this book, the Gospel of Mark, represents Peter's account of the ministry of Jesus. So they go up on this high mountain with Jesus, and some really strange things begin to happen. Now, we don't know which mountain they went up, 
Um, Peter refers to it in 2 Peter 1 as the holy mountain. Uh, one possibility, pure speculation, uh, is Mount Horeb. Now, while they're up on this mountain, Jesus changes somehow. Uh, the Greek word for transfigured here is metamorpho. He metamorphosed. He changed his physical appearance in front of them. Luke's account specifies a little bit and says that the appearance of his face was altered. Matthew's account says his face shone like the sun. We're told Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them, dazzling white, white as light. So the change that occurs in the face of Jesus is one of radiance. Did you ever see, I know you have seen a movie like this, a movie where music is used as a part of the storytelling? I don't just mean for the mood, I mean when all of a sudden some notes play and you're reminded of something else. Um, the best example I can think of this is the Star Wars prequel tr trilogies, when Anakin would, he, when he takes revenge on the raiders or he, for kidnapping his mom, or he's talking to the emperor and the emperor is telling him tempting lies. In the background, you hear that refrain, Darth Vader's theme, right? And, and all of a sudden, you're reminded by the music, by the background, uh, what's happening, what's actually happening. Well, our passage today is full of notes that should remind you of other things. Images that point to deep and important and old things. So here we are, high up on a mountain, and Jesus begins to glow. Does that sound familiar at all? What happens to Moses on Mount Horeb when he meets with the Lord in Exodus 34? He starts to glow. Now, when we were kids, we had glow-in-the-dark toys, like uh, those stars you put or, or like those stars you put on your ceiling, and they sort of absorb the light and then hold on to it for a while, and then after the light goes out, they still are shining a little bit. And this is like what Moses' face did after being in the presence of the Lord. It held on to the Lord's glory. So, the first thing that we're meant to understand is that we are in the presence, these men, I should say, are in the presence of God. And sure enough, what is the next thing that happens? Moses and Elijah appear and begin speaking with Jesus. Isn't it interesting to note that Elijah himself, in 1 Kings 19, spent some time in the presence of the Lord, and he hears the Lord speak. And where was he? At the top of Mount Horeb. In Old Testament law, two witnesses are required to prove any fact. If an important fact was claimed, two witnesses must be there to confirm it. The two most important spokesmen 
four God in Israel's history have appeared on this mountain to confirm to these disciples what will be declared in this passage. Now, we aren't told what James and John do while this is going on. Presumably, they sit in awestruck silence and don't know what to do or say. I think that they probably chose the best, the good portion. Uh, Peter, typically, is not afflicted with the wisdom to do and say nothing. He jumps to the fore and suggests that he, James, and John erect tents for these three heroes. After all, these are three such important figures of the faith. On one hand, his response shows how highly Peter regards Jesus. Think about it. Did anyone alive at that time think more highly of Jesus? In Peter's mind, Jesus is a prophet on par with the greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah. Three tents for Israel's three greatest prophets. This puts forth a view of Jesus that's high by the world's standards, but in reality is far too low. What I love about this passage is that it isn't Jesus or even Moses or Elijah that correct Peter. Rather, it is the voice of God from the cloud. (laughs) Peter hasn't even finished getting these words out of his mouth when the cloud descends and the voice declares, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Then, in an instant, the witnesses are gone, the cloud is gone, the radiance is gone, Jesus is left alone with his disciples. Do you see that this whole display, all the refrains that have been echoed from the Old Testament, the two witnesses, all were there, all occurred to make one truth unquestionably clear. God wants to say one thing very clearly. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a simple and yet very profound message. This is what these disciples needed to know, and it is what you and I need most to know. Let's turn to our first point. Listening to the beloved Son means that we must recognize and affirm who He is. This is my beloved Son, God says. This Jesus of Nazareth is the divine Son of God. He has the authority to speak for God. He is greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. He is the one whom they have served. Instead of three equal tents, these two are pegs in his tent. They have testified to his greatness and his coming. When Moses stood on the mountain and beheld God's glory, the glory that lit up his face like a glow-in-the-dark toy was the same radiance that is coming out of Jesus in this passage. When Elijah stood on the mountain and listened for the still, small voice, it was the voice of Jesus that spoke. 
And Peter ex- describes this experience in 2 Peter chapter 1. He describes himself as having been an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. In the transfiguration, God the Father bestowed supreme honor and glory upon Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory. He is not merely one in the line of Moses and Elijah. He is the new and better Moses. He is the radiance that lit Moses' face. He is the king that was to come to which the law and the prophets testified. He deserves the worship of every bit of creation. And it is only right that we would proclaim that to everyone and everything in every way. Brothers and sisters, we must make every effort to make the real Jesus known for his sake, for our sake, and for the sake of this world. The world around us absolutely does not see Jesus for who he is. How often do we hear Jesus' name taken in vain in our culture? I don't just mean like as an expletive. I mean, how often do we hear people appeal to Jesus to justify or prop up whatever pet ideology they advocate? If you do a Google search for the, word, the, the phrase bumper sticker and Jesus was a, here are the, the results you get. Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a liberal. Jesus was a libertarian. Jesus was an independent. Jesus was a home birth. It takes an odd turn at the end. (laughs) Jesus wasn't any of those things. And let me tell you, it's a good thing he wasn't. Because none of those things can give you meaning. They cannot give you true meaning, true happiness, and hope. But Jesus, the beloved Son of God, absolutely can give you those things. I hate to say it, but there are people in our churches who don't get this. Many people are following Jesus because they perceive him to agree with them. Peter seemed to have a pretty good understanding of how things were turning out. At least in his own eyes, he had stuff together and had a good idea for moving forward at every turn. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. I've got a great idea. Let's make some tents. What he gained between Mark 9 and 2 Peter 1 is an understanding of the supreme authority of Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, Peter. When Jesus speaks about the world, he describes it as it really is. When he tells you his plan to usher in the kingdom, he knows what he's talking about. A lot of people are friends of Jesus because some of the things he says bolster their worldview. Just like Peter in Mark 9, they are super excited about the Jesus in their mind, but not particularly excited about by Jesus as he really is. But he is not a tame lion, brothers and sisters. You may not look to Jesus as an ally. He is not your advocate or your co-pilot. He is Lord. 
clothed in radiant glory, and your agenda must submit to his. This is the only path to happiness. This is the only path to wholeness. And this is the only path to salvation. And it's the only hope for the people of this world. Second, listening to the beloved Son of God means that we must trust the Word of God. Moses, of course, represents the law given to Israel. He was the first and greatest among the prophets. But Elijah, prophet to the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, represents the ministry of the prophets. All of the later prophets can be said to have been operating in the spirit of Elijah. When Jesus taught, he often used a saying. He would say, he would say this, the law and the prophets testify to, and then whatever it was, whatever truth he was trying to demonstrate. Paul also uses this phrase. I don't want you to miss the symbolism of, that's happening here on the mountain. Here we have two witnesses. One is the law and one is the prophets, testifying to what God says out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. What the disciples and we are shown is that the word of God demonstrates and proves who Jesus is and what he came to do. Peter didn't miss this significance. Uh, the major takeaway from this event for Peter was the authority of the word of God. After describing the transfiguration and the words God spoke in 2 Peter uh, 1, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, do you want to know what I learned up there on the mountain? I'll tell you. I learned to trust in the word. The Old Testament said that a king from the line of David was coming, who would be a prophet like Moses, who would usher in a new covenant, and by his stripes we would be healed. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would rise again after three, day, after three days. And his death and resurrection would be the blow by which that ancient serpent is defeated and the curse on creation is reversed. Do you want more? It's all in there. One aspect of this reality that I want you to take home and sort of chew on uh, might be, you know, take it with you. The ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ substantiate the truth of the Word of God. Because the law and the prophets testified that they were going to happen. So here's what this means. So if someone says to you, how do you know that the word of God is true? The answer is because it promised that Jesus would come to save us from our sins, and he did in exactly the ways that it said he would. But wait, 
The reverse is also true. Jesus proves the word, but the word also proves Jesus. The fact that the word of God laid out the plan of salvation before it happened proves that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. All that together means that you can be sure of the word because of Christ, and you can be sure of Christ because of the word. Thus, when you and I declare who Jesus is, like I said, we must, we can be fully assured that the word of God once sown will not return void. Why? Because it, the God who raised Jesus from the dead has said so. The truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection prove and uh, are, are, are evidence that the promises will come true. The promises of the word will come true. The word will accomplish the work that God has set for it. Which leads to our final point. When we recognize who this beloved son is, and we place our trust in him and in his sure word, we can be certain of the hope that we have in him. Do you ever ask yourself when reading these accounts, why didn't the disciples understand what Jesus came to do? He kept telling them while he was with them, I'm going to die and rise again. And before our passage, Jesus told them that. And then in our passage tonight, Jesus told them that. And it says, um, they, they wondered what this rising from the dead must mean. How is it that they didn't understand? We've already seen it's been in the Old Testament. right? How is it that they didn't understand? They didn't. They didn't understand it. And this, this means something practically interesting. And that is that something can be rock solidly true and certain and that you and I, out of, a fear, out of fear or a lack of faith, just are not able to see it or accept it. But praise be to God, the truth and certainty of the gospel doesn't depend upon your faith. How often does our world encourage faith? Faith in faith, as if faith in and of itself was the goal. It doesn't seem to matter what you believe in as long as you believe. What nonsense. There's no power in faith. There is all power in Jesus, and if you trust in him, if you place your faith in him, you'll be rescued from death, sin, and hell. Faith is essential, but it isn't the power. The power is in the object of our faith, in Jesus himself. This is really good news, brothers and sisters. There are some of us, some of you, who struggle to accept in full what Jesus has accomplished. You've heard the truth. You've grown up thinking or knowing that Jesus died for sinners. But in your heart, way deep down, you think, 
but surely not for me. My heart is too wicked. I've denied him too many times. I've turned to my own way too often. I have too many doubts. I'm a Christian, and yet I can't kick this small, stupid, addictive sin. I belong to Jesus, and I have a dark and angry heart. People who respond to the gospel in this way stay stuck in these sinful patterns, robbed of freedom, robbed of the joy of the gospel. They're in the room singing with the congregation of the saints, and they are sitting off by themselves, fretting, instead of singing out with joy and freedom in Christ. It's like Jesus comes to them with the living water, with the freedom of the gospel, with joy, and they say, no, no, thank you. You've, you've got the wrong guy. Listen to me. Jesus does not have the wrong guy or the wrong gal. This Jesus, clothed in radiance, crowned in majesty, doesn't make mistakes. Brothers and sisters, he didn't die for you only if you feel it strongly enough. Let me say that again. He didn't die for the ones who feel it strongly enough. If you want him to deliver you from your sins and be your savior, you give yourself fully to him. The beloved Son of God, in whom we must believe, said this, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. He said this, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said this, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word clearly says, if you give yourself to him, you are his. And he doesn't lose what's his. In fact, he guides, he teaches, he comforts and perfects what is his. By his spirit, he grows the fruit of righteousness in those who are his. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His grace is sufficient for you. He will always be with you and never leave or forsake you. He will give you wisdom if you ask. He will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will provide a way out of temptation. He will complete the good work that he began in you. He is working all things, all things for your good. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. How do we know that these things are true? These promises 
are rock solidly true. How do we know? How are we sure of these things? Let me answer that question with a few final questions. Has Jesus come in the flesh? Has he lived the perfect life? Did he die? Did he rise? If the answer to those questions is yes, then the promises of God in his word are more certain than the rising of the sun in the morning. This is the God and Savior that we worship. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your goodness and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. He is your beloved Son, and he is our beloved Savior. We thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves. You did not leave us to what we deserve. But you have accomplished a glorious salvation through Jesus Christ for your people. We thank you that he is the sure power in which we can trust and have faith. We thank you that you promised him in your word and that we have a sure salvation because of him. We ask that you would enable us to share this hope with those around us and that you would work through your word as we share it to bring to yourself children who trust you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.